Hello listener, Nick here. A new week after we promised that we'd be doing normal weekly episodes again, here I am doing another one of these on my own. You basically can't trust anyone. Sorry! Why is this happening? Well, this week it's kind of my fault again. I have a big thing going on at work that I'm super preoccupied by, and it's made arranging any sort of recording stuff really hard. (laughs) Hard. (laughs) Also, I'm slightly concerned that I'm coming down with something. The good news is that James is ill. Uh, uh, no, wait. The good news is that James is ill anyway. With Allergy. So even though I failed to set up a recording, James would have failed to do a recording had I set a recording up. So in a way it is James's fault after all, and that's a good thing. So what's going on here? Right, well, Noah's really a proper little person now, and while he's incredibly amazing and adorable, there is such a thing as having too much personality. In his case, bath times have become a bit of an emotional hotspot. He's never completely adored the bath, but at some point he started getting really panicky about his hair getting wet or us doing anything to it, and that's transformed into an aversion to getting in there at all on some nights. But he's also at the age where he's putting all sorts of delaying tactics into play for bedtime. So if you dodge putting him in the bath at all, that just comes up as one of the things he obsessively wants once it's time for stories, that and his potty and and stuff like that. And actually, he's almost entirely dodging story time uh, by like running around the room and doing random stuff, which I have to admit I'm gutted about. Reading to him while cuddling has been a high point in my days for ages. And as I mentioned, also potty training. We're pretty intelligent, engaged parents, so our complete dumbness when it comes to potty training would be hilarious, if not for the fact that we're now having to clean up child toilet as well as old dog toilet. Uh, Max continues to develop wonderful. In his case, that mainly means he's on the verge of walking, which is great fun and fills you with pride until... Well, until you realise that pretty soon you're going to have two boys running around the house. It's all swell, though. I've had under pressure stuck in my head for what feels like forever, but it's probably only actually a couple of days. I don't think David Bowie was dead when we recorded the most recent episode. Alan Rickman definitely wasn't. And it's been weird how we're responding to it in our house. Rickman was always the bigger presence in Amy's life, but Bowie was one of those people who... Even if you weren't a huge fan, there's a good chance that you have a few huge touchstones, diamond bullet memories, that mean his passing might not drown you in sadness, but it'll hit you deep in a few places. Amy and I both have different experiences with David Bowie's music, but have a few big shared memories. Labyrinth was a huge part of both our childhoods, albeit for different reasons. In my case, it was kind of Jennifer Connelly, because I was that age. And I don't think either of us realised quite how good he can be, until we got obsessed with the soundtrack to the show Life on Mars, which is quite recently, actually. I guess we were travelling a lot, so listening to a lot of music, and we were watching a lot of CSI, so gravitated towards Baba Yaga by The Who, which is on there. Oh, by the way, if you don't know it, that song is pretty fucking epic. 
They might be a bit too pretentious to listen to cold, but it's so dramatic that it's no surprise that it ends up being used on a lot of TV shows. I think the use of it in Life on Mars in particular was exceptional. Life on Mars, the show, not the song. Anyway, the show's got two Bowie songs on the soundtrack. It might have more in the actual show itself, but um, but on the soundtrack there are two uh, two particular songs. Uh, not surprisingly, Life on Mars, and also the song Dream Genie. And those two songs couldn't be more different. I don't think I'd realised Dream Genie was even Bowie. It's one of those typical modish songs that was so poppy and popular in the 60s or 70s, and it isn't particularly weird at all. I mean, for all I know, it started all of those songs off, but they became pretty typical. Status quo shit, literally. You know, you dance to them kind of hands on your hips, sort of wonky. I'm doing it now, You like the like doing the chicken dance or something. Like you imagine your parents did back when radio DJs were beyond reproach for anything but their long hair. But Life on Mars, the other song, it's it's amazing. Amy has this thing about only really enjoying listening to songs in the car that she knows the words to. I guess because mainly she's the one doing the driving, so she wants to be comfortable. So we end up really with quite simple stuff. Uh, A lot of stuff I've incepted her with, like some of the Flaming Lips, for example, or pop that we're already both comfortable with. I like listening to new shit I don't quite get yet. This has got easier as I've got older because I can never remember lyrics anymore. But Life on Mars is one of a handful of songs where we listen to it over and over, despite it being weirdly epic and unknowable. And Amy keeps saying, I should try and learn the words to this, almost every time we listen to it. But we we sort of enjoy only knowing bits of it too much to, to bother actually learning anymore. It makes it more dreamy. It's just amazing. But anyway, so it's been weird, for various reasons, but... You know, we were sad, but comfortably sad. But then Amy heard this version of Under Pressure with isolated vocals from David Bowie and Freddie Mercury. You might have heard it. I remember hearing it a while back and thinking it was almost comical. A lot of that song sounds like the two of them aren't actually singing together. Like they had to do a song together for contractual reasons, but both decided to just take the piss. But they've both got those voices. And there's this killer reverb on it. They both already sound ethereal and enigmatic, like two ghosts trying to explain something to you that's really important, but they've mostly forgotten how to string a thought together, and they're both trying to tell you something different from each other. And Occasionally they sort of intersect and you get a little chill, like when lots of people are talking at once in a crowded room, but then you catch what someone's saying across the buzz and realise they're talking about the same show that you are. But without the music, and with the reverb, and the big gaps between yodels, that effect is complete. Amy was pretty young when Freddie Mercury died, but I think, more than most, his voice was one that most of us in the UK, who were growing up before a certain point, grew up with. So maybe that's why this weird vocal track worked so powerfully on her. She keeps replaying it, even though it makes her sad, almost because it makes her feel sad. That's fairly typical of someone like me. But she doesn't do it often, and I kind of love it. So anyway, I'll share that piece of audio in the show notes if I can find it. Last week, I wrote one of the most self-indulgent things I've ever done for Elephant Words, and that's plumbing the depths of self-indulgence, bearing in mind some of the stuff I've written for Elephant Words. It wasn't fiction, 
If anything, it was more two grown men territory than anything else. And you've shown that you're endlessly patient, listener. So you've brought this on yourself. I'm going to share it with you in a minute. I don't mind saying that I'm a bit worried about elephant words. It was pretty difficult to get writing for the image that I wrote this one for. It was shared before Christmas and and it seemed to just boggle most of the writers. So if you like reading, please do check out the site. And if you like what you read, tell the writers about it. Feedback or adoration isn't why most of us do it, but it can't hurt to get some. And if you want to try writing, go over and take a look too. We always need more people to take on the challenge. So anyway, I'll pass you over to Elephant Words Nick in a second, and we'll see you next week, listener. Or you'll hear us next week. I'm not really sure how that works. Thanks for listening, as always, and all that. It's the terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends screaming, let, let me out. Pray tomorrow gets me higher. Pressure on, feet on, people on, streets. Okay. Chipping the round, keep my brains around the floor. These are the days it never ends, but it it's a terror of knowing what this world is about Watching some good friends screaming, let, let me out, out. I've spent more of 2016 thinking about the 80s than I have thinking about 2016. This started at the end of last year. A new Star Wars film, the first in more than 30 years to take the story forward, and the first in 30 to really look back. Of course, that's partly true, and partly not. The Star Wars films have always messed with our sense of time, haven't they? It's right there in the opening moments of the first, also the fourth, movie, A long time ago, in a galaxy that looks like it's far, far in our future. So this isn't the first time Star Wars has looked back and forward. Lucas has done that twice already. First he revisited the original trilogy and applied a veneer of -of state-of-the-art, future-facing technology to the special effects. And then he doubled down, dipped further back into the chronology of that universe, but pushed the technology used into the future of filmmaking arguably further into the future than we'd reached at that point. He was trying to make a film with minimal live-action acting and very few physical sets and make it all feel real, and we probably weren't quite there yet back then. But looking back and moving forward, looking forward but moving back, Star Wars is like that. In the Star Wars present, everything looks old. In the Star Wars past, everything is shiny. I've been looking at this week's elephant image since last year, What immediately struck me about it was that these planes, instantly recalling cinema memories of World War, looked impossibly futuristic. I've never seen them look so polished and metallic on screen, always tarnished by the grit of battle, and I'm already primed to see old metal birds like these as simultaneously of the past and the future. I grew up reading Dan Dare, already an historic artefact by the 80s, 
but going through a revival in the weeklies and watching old pulpy science fiction serials, films from the 50s which imagined worlds distant and futuristic being shown on TV after school was done. Star Wars itself borrowed so heavily from the same old pulps, Lucas taking a Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers aesthetic and applying it to borrowed John Carter world building. But I didn't realise till much later, because I was a kid with his head in very specific clouds, and much preferred space fantasy to war movies and history books. The whole sections of A New Hope are really a heavy-handed homage to old World War II flicks, like the Dambusters. I didn't know anything about aviation of the period, but the turrets in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon meant that when I did start watching those old war movies, the bombers were instantly familiar to me. Earlier today, I was talking to someone I used to know really well, but now only ever bump into on the bus, and we were talking about Shadowrun. We used to play that game back in the early 90s, but people are revisiting it a lot right now. The conceit of the world of Shadowrun is that it's a cyberpunk world, borrowing heavily from, among other things, the early novels of William Gibson, but with a magic twist. It's a little bit more overblown than Gibson's work, a little more campy, but at heart, that world is what speculative writers in the 80s thought things would be like today. Going back to that world now has a peculiar Doppler effect. You see that imagined future through your younger eyes and simultaneously see it as a nostalgic artefact of the past. Gibson himself wrote about a similar phenomenon in the Gernsback Continuum, visions of the future from the 1950s overlaying themselves onto his protagonist's present. Our aspirations and inspirations catching up to our reality, twisting them. Me in the 80s, such a sad kid that I spent my days and nights terrified of nuclear war, but so spacey that when I heard the OMD song, an irritating, repetitive piece of the wallpaper of the decade, I had no idea what Anola Gay actually was. I'm such a spacey adult that when I found and posted this image, even when I copy-pasted the name of it, and all the weeks since, I just didn't register that it was Enola Gay. My head was too full of space battles. And then, of course, Bowie. When I first heard of Bowie, he was a dumb old pop star, dancing in the street with another dumb old pop star. I wasn't interested. He was old music, and I considered myself forward-looking at that point, because I was a dumb fucking teenager, and we all do. And then he was the creepy old sexy guy in Labyrinth, and that cemented him as a piece of the past for me. He was 39 when he made that film. As I write this, I'm 42, and a half. Teenagers are idiots. But Bowie was a man from the future before I'd ever heard of him, and we're only just catching up to what he was then, now. As we caught up, he shifted into something else. A weird, beautiful, old, young Doppler man, 2016 so far, the past car crashing into the present, and the future dying on the horizon. Mm-hmm.